Welcome to the Million Pound Biller Podcast, where we interview people from inside and outside recruitment to give you ideas to help you on your way to a million pound year. Now, over to Adrian Mansfield, the Million Pound Biller. Welcome to another Million Pound Biller interview. Today I'm speaking to David Perry of Perry Mantel. David's been in the recruitment market now for over three decades. He's covered over a thousand retained searches, and in that time, he's built many, many million pound years. He talks to us about his skills and background in headhunting and what he brings to the market. And we also discuss the fourth industrial revolution and how that could affect recruitment going forward. It's a great and illuminating chat with somebody that's got decades of experience, and I hope you take something away from it. Welcome to the Million Pound Biller interview podcast. And today we're joined from across the Great Pond by David Perry of Perry Martel. David, if you could perhaps take a 30 seconds to a minute or so just to introduce yourself to the listeners and give us a background to who you are and, and where your interest in recruitment comes from or your background in recruitment. Uh, sure, Adrian. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Very simply, the 50,000-foot uh, view is I have been in the search industry since 1935. I started my own, sorry, 1985, not 35. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> myself. I started with a small employment agency opening their executive search branch. I went on my honeymoon, got fired the day I got back because a whole bunch of deals had closed and the guy didn't want to pay me my 50%. Long story. Only of interest to me, really. He said I got lucky. So I walked down the street and went to work for another uh, agency. And um, I got lucky there. And I stayed about a year, year and a half, year and three quarters. I, I, but my second year in the business, the three quarters of a year I stayed, I, I built 758000 So that was 1988. Wow. I specialized in construction. And I dabbled in technology. So we opened our own firm. My business partner is my wife. It was her money. She raised the money by selling the house that she inherited from her parents and investing in us. So in 1988, Perry Martel was born. And since then, I've done 1,591 searches. Uh We're a retained search firm. We have a one-year guarantee. I've replaced six people. And I've negotiated north of $400 million in salaries. And along the way, to be considered one of the good guys, because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm as telephone shy as everybody else. I hate getting hung up on, right? <laughs> um, I decided to do something different. And I, um, I wrote a couple of books. I wrote Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters. Mm-hmm. And that announcing that I'm, I'm the author of that when I'm first calling drops all barriers for people talking to me. And uh, so I wrote, did all three versions of that. And then I wrote uh, Hiring Greatness, How to Recruit Your Dream Team and Crush the Competition. And then I wrote Executive Recruiting for Dummies. And now I've got two new books I'm working on. One is Revolutions Need Leaders. And that's a book on how to recruit Industry 4.0 leaders. That'll be out in the next couple of years, I guess. And I'm writing in the fourth edition of the Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters. And that one will be a career combat volume. Because stuff has changed so much in just the last two years, right? Yeah. So is that a good overview? That's, I mean, that does an amazing, amazing thing. So, I mean, just talk to me. Obviously, we'll come on in a second. And I'm very keen on talking to you about the industry 4.0 space because it's an area that's particularly keen to my heart, given some of the stuff I've done in, in recent past. But we're talking about that sort of career that you've had since since 88 and coming through the, the sort of changes in recruitment from, you know, just simply the mobile phone, if nothing else. How have you found the sort of the space uh, in your, on your side of the, the Atlantic in terms of the, the recruitment market? How have you found it changing over those periods? And how have you adapted or how have your clients adapted into that space? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And um, when I first opened up, I had an office that I went to every day. Hmm. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I had a phone bill that was, you know, 
2,500 bucks a month and a courier bill that was about two grand a month. And I don't have that anymore. Yeah. Why? Because I've got, you know, a telephone system VoIP that follows me anywhere I go. And I haven't used a courier package and I, I can't remember how, in fact, I still have some, I got a deal <laughs> on courier packages from Canada Post back in 91 or 92. I bought a hundred of them for four bucks. It was like incredible steal. Yeah. Only I've got like 80 of them still in the basement that I'll never use. Right. So that, you know, the, the tools have changed a lot back in 88 to probably, you know, 98, 99, we used the phone a lot mm. to, to even find people. You know, my trick when I got in their business, because I was in, in construction and, and I didn't know anything about construction really, but who needs to, right? I, uh, I phoned around until I found a guy that had the job that, you know, I needed to recruit for and he wasn't interested. So I took him up for dinner. I said, can I buy you a really expensive dinner and ply you with liquor and pick your brain? He said, sure. So like five hours later, I knew everything there really was to know about construction and including what questions to ask to yeah. trip people up. So that's how I started. Nowadays, I'd go on the internet and, you know, What's, uh, what's IOT, right? You know, what's cyber? And within an hour, you know, I've absorbed everything I need to know to go out and do that, that search. Back in the day, your candidate list came from, you know, your lovely research librarian at your favorite library, if you were lucky, because mm. they point you in the direction of the right journals to read. And um, nowadays, you, you know, you can pretty much find anybody. So what's really changed is the speed at which we can find prospects, clients, mm. and the speed at which we can, you know, source candidates or potential candidates for a role, that's changed. What hasn't changed or, or, or what hasn't, that's got easier. What hasn't gotten easier is the one-to-one -one marketing of I've got this role and here's why I think it fits you. Mm. And, um, you know, it, when you're working retained, we don't run ads. I mean, I've run a couple lately, but they were for strategic reasons. Mm. We don't run ads. You know, we... We do the, the market mapping, and if we're looking for, oh, I just finished it. I'm just finishing, knock on wood, a CIO role for a, a big satellite company. And, um, you know, we essentially market map the entire satellite space. I've done it with them before, so it wasn't that much work. But uh, we came up with 87, 87 or 89 CIOs in telecommunications mm -hmm. or ISPs in Canada, the United States, Britain. I've done a lot of work in the UK, mm -hmm. France, Israel, and uh, in Japan. And I talked to every single one of them. Pick up the phone, introduce myself, have the conversation, you know, to a man, and they were all men, to a man, not one single person was looking, which is typical, right? So, you know, now what we need to do more than anything else is do one-to-one -one marketing, you know, to a very highly defined or tightly defined market space mm -hmm. of, of candidates or prospects. That's the major thing that's changed. People talk about a candidate market or a client market. It hasn't changed a bit, I swear to God, mm -hmm. for me, since 88, because we're always going after the best of the best. Yeah. Well, you know, typically, the best are always working. And if you find someone who's in between opportunities, that's a real superstar, they've got their choice of where they want to go. And you, you explain this to clients and say, listen, you know, I know you're looking for a rock star, but if, if you're advertising, then you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot, if not in the head. Mm. If you're looking for a rock star because the rock star is going to see your ad and 15 others just like it. And now you're in a bidding contest. So are you feeling lucky? Yeah. You know, and they hate that. <laughs> they hate it when I bring that up. But that's the reality of the market because that's what we face. Right, Adrian? Yeah. You know, everybody's looking for the same talent. When I got in the business, there was probably uh, 50 to 80 recruiters, executive recruiters in Canada, coast to coast. Hmm. 
I couldn't tell you how many there are now, but it's probably in the tens of thousands, right? Yeah. So does that answer that question or was Look, it? It's very, it's very interesting because it's exactly the same conversation I've been having this side of the pond for the last 20 years as well, that good people are working and those people aren't going to be out there jumping up and down saying, hire me, hire me. You have to go out there when you have to find them. And it's, you know, even in these COVID impacted times, the good people are still working. There may be a few more of those that have just happened to be in between jobs, but as you say, they're even more in demand than they've ever been. So now, whilst there may be three or four people on the market in terms of the candidates that, you know, just fallen between the cracks and are on the market, they're now out there going, well, I'm now worth double what I was worth. Yep. Before because, you know, I'm great. And these guys around me are great. And therefore, I want to make sure that I get my value in the next job. Correct. Um, so I think it's interesting that the market in your history, and, and certainly it echoes, I echo it from this side, is that, you know, the, the model works the same now as it always has done. It's about good quality candidates. Finding them is tough. Holding on to them is even more difficult. And getting them to the job that you've got versus the job that somebody else has got is, is perhaps the biggest challenge that a recruitment consultant of any flavor is going to have. Absolutely. And you know, I'm just fortunate that I'm old school. I can source. I can do all that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm a phone guy. I am a pick up the phone and make a connection with you know, someone on the other end of the phone regardless of whether or not they want to talk to me. And, and that's the same with, you know, when, when I'm marketing a candidate, because, you know, once a year you find a superstar, right? That yeah. knows their value and understands clearly where they want to go next. And we'll sit down and have that conversation. It's about once a year and we'll identify those 10 companies and I'll go after the CEOs or the chairs of the board or whoever I have to and until it's done. And my record, by the way, is 51 phone calls. And that's, that was verified by the Wall Street Journal. I was going after one particular guy for three months and on the 51st, oh, I got to tell you, you got a second for this story? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So this goes back mid nineties, right? No email. I mean, really, email. Yes. But there's like seven of us. I got an email in the whole world. Who cared? Right. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm chasing this president of Motorola, a division of Motorola. And I'm calling this guy. I left 50 voicemail messages, all different, by the way. After I got to seven, it was like, what's the point, right? But for me, it's like, I got nothing to do, right? I'm working on these other projects. We have a candidate we're negotiating with for this offer. This guy's just better, but I'm going to make a placement either way. So for me, it was just fun. So I'm writing down, and I was looking for it a couple of weeks ago. I was writing down the list, all the different voicemails I, I left. And I got, to, uh, I got to about 48. And I found out through a secretary who we got, I got to know quite well, you know, the name of her kids, what she did for a living, you know, she did for a hobby, all that kind of stuff. And I said to her, she said that uh, Glenn, that was his name, Glenn Brownlee, he was uh, taken off to Germany the following week. So I said, oh, I hung up the phone and um, I started calling the, uh, the car rental places in Munich where he's going to land. Until I find, swear to God, they did the checking. Until I found the little place that was renting him this car. And I pretended to be him. Shame on me. Okay, I get it. Um, shame on me. And I, but I, what I did is I said, I, I need to know that there's a phone in the car. And they said, yes, sir, there is. I need to know the number because I got to get to my wife. You know, Mimi wants to know where I am, you know, pretty much all the time. So they gave it to me and I waited until Glenn, I, two more phone calls, didn't answer them. 51st phone call was about an hour and a quarter after he'd landed in Munich. I knew he had the car by that time. I was pretty sure. And I called him while he's on the Autobahn. He hits the, he hits the hands free. And he says, Glenn Brownlee. He said, Glenn, David Perry, how are you? You got a minute? And he goes, I'm on the Autobahn. I won't tell you what he said next. What do you want? <laughs> and we had this conversation. And, and after about three minutes, he said, fine, fine. I'll meet your client next week in Vancouver. Well, my client is in Ottawa. And I called my client and I said, you know, that guy that I've been chasing for the last you know, couple of months that I'm really excited about, I said, he's agreed to meet you. 
He said, well, we're already closing the deal with this other guy, right? We're between counteroffers. I said, yeah, but this is a, this guy's better. I know he's better. And the other guy's fine. And uh, I said, is Marilyn at your door yet? And he says, yeah, why? I said, well, let her in. So she comes on in and he says, why do I need to talk to Marilyn? I said, well, she's got your tickets because you're going to meet Glenn in Vancouver two days from now. So you have to fly out. He was livid, but he did it, right? We yeah. become friends. At one point, we'd actually hired 64 people in the company. We become friends. And so he flew out to Vancouver. He comes back, he says, you're right. And I said, no, I know I'm right. I said, can we do this? I said, I'm going to continue to negotiate with the other guy while we bring this guy up to meet the team. And we did it over a weekend. And late on uh, Sunday afternoon, we agreed on we were going to make this deal. And we wrote it all up. And uh, Monday, he signed off. And Tuesday, the other guy decided to go a little quiet on me, to, on his strategy. And so I, we just walked away, hired this other guy. They did an IPO you know, for 40, 50 million bucks. I can't remember. It was a good, good successful story. But no, here's my point in all this. Most recruiters today, I've been told, you know, continue to source or try to meet prospects through LinkedIn or sending emails. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of courses out now by, you know, people our age that used to recruit that are teaching young recruiters how to get on the phone because that's where the action is. You, you don't understand why someone's going to say no until you understand what they're all about. You can't do that in an email because you're just a pest. Absolutely. I mean, and it's interesting. I've written down here just, you know, I think that story, which is brilliant, I just absolutely amazes me. Brilliant. I mean, I can understand exactly where, you, where it's going from and I can understand exactly what the, the process behind it was. But, but it just shows to me, and it was one of the points I made when I was reading your notes earlier on, is that the idea of headhunting and retained work gives you such good practice in terms of that idea of going, getting to the point of the market mapping thing you said earlier on, going out there and really, truly understanding the nature, nature of the beast, the working market you're in understand who the individuals in that space are and those skills are so far removed from some of the day-to-day recruitment processes that people involve these days it's literally a case of if they are picking up the phone they're doing it to go can you give me a job please or some form of that and then they run off to try and find the first candidate they've got or the second candidate they've got and send that person over to the job and then move on because so many are now kpi driven they're all based around got to hit numbers got to hit numbers got to hit numbers and now your 51 calls to that guy you know, that doesn't look good on metrics because you say, well, why are you not just closing the deal with the other guy? Because this guy's better. And I'm doing a better job for my client by getting hold of him, even if it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to get a fee. Well, obviously, would have got a fee, hopefully got a fee, but it means I'm going to get the best quality candidate for that client. And that perseverance of getting through that process makes it, you know, great work. So the second company, you, you tell me when, when to stop or when, when yeah, to change point here. The second company I joined, the, you know, after I got fired, on my honeymoon. I never did collect that money. He did eventually apologize, but another story. <laughs> the second company I joined, the guy that, um, that I joined up to work with, I joined a company called Console Pro. And when I joined, there were five guys and they were, you know, they told me this $100,000 a year opportunity, which to me is just fine. You know, back in the 80s, 100 grand, 100 grand. Mm-hmm. But within about six, seven weeks of my joining, they were all gone. Every single one of them. Every single one. I'm on a $500 a month draw. That means I got to pay it back a yeah. month, right? Yeah, I went four months before I, I made my first placement. I mean, that was, I was kicking down the door. Mm. But here's the point. A year and a bit later, when I went on my own, they had hired five, you know, the branch manager. Everybody left except one guy. He was a formal naval commander and he took over and um, he didn't like me. I found out why much later. It had nothing to do with me. But when we moved over to this new space and started to hire other recruiters, you know, I was the only guy that was on a hundred percent commission. Everybody else got paid a salary between, you know, fifteen, eighty thousand dollars. And um, 
I said, when I left, I had done 758,000 the first three quarters. That year, the five people that I left collectively did 139 grand. <laughs> collectively. Now, they were still in business because of the 758,000 that I built. Mm. I took home 52. Wow. That's terrible. <laughs> from, yeah, from commission only. Um, yeah. Now, in retrospect, it sucked, but I came out of retail before that and I was making about 20 grand. So I'm twice, I'm, you know, I'm double ahead, right? Yeah. And I got a job and I'm meeting all these really cool people. Uh, so when I went out on my own, you know, of course, he came out to, to pursue me and sue me, but he wasn't successful because I didn't take any of my clients. I started from scratch. And, and the, you know, the thing that happened to me that was so lucky, I mean, I got a horseshoe, right? Mm-hmm. Is uh, my former boss uh, went and got my Rolodex, so I left it there, of all the people that I, you know, he thought were clients. And so he wrote them all a letter saying, my name is, and I'm taking over the desk of, and if you did business with him, not only will I sue him, I'll also sue you. I did not know this. And he sent this letter out to about, I'm going to say 1,100 companies. And um, five or six of them called me. And that's how I know the story. I got a copy of the letter. And uh, one of them was uh, the brother of the, oh, you're familiar with Canary Wharf? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we did the retail component, 2 million square feet of Canary Wharf, hiring the people that, that built that. And I got that deal because this guy called, it was Albert Reichman, and uh, said, hey, I just got this letter and it's really defamatory and I don't know who the hell you are. He's quite angry. And I apologize. He said, don't, no, don't, don't apologize. He said, if you're that good, we got we to try you out. <laughs> so they did. So I got my first deal, right? Like two weeks in. And it was like the company in construction to work with in Canada, if not the world at the time. Mm. And, it, and it just kept rolling from there. I got, I got five clients that year that way from the letters that he'd sent out. So I'm a big believer in direct mail. And by the way, I'm still a big believer in direct mail because, you know, when was the last time you got a letter with a stamp on it, let alone hand autographed? Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it preaches the choir there because I think those models, I mean, the phone is the obvious one, but things like sending out a handwritten note to somebody to say, you know, this is, this is what we do. This is, how, this is why I want to contact you. The candidate or client. Yep. You know, that, spending that amount of time just to do that kind of puts you ahead of the, ahead of the game in so many ways. But it's, as I say, it was, it was normal practice back in the late 80s, early 90s when you and I first kicked off. I started in early 90s, probably, a bit earlier than that. And then you go look at, look at the stuff now in terms of the, the model. You say it's moving on to that. I understand that the market's getting quicker. I understand that people are trying to respond. And I think some of it, to be fair, is client-driven, bad clients, I have to say, but client-driven in the respect of, we want the first come, first serve on a candidate. doesn't matter whether you vet them almost. We just want the candidates. They're driven, driven to our sort of very tight PSL rules, all these sort of things, which I can understand from a commercial point of view helps the clients keep costs down, but doesn't necessarily mean, or definitely doesn't mean they're going to hire the best quality candidates. Because how can it? If you've got a company, recruitment consultancy or whoever, working on fees, going, well, I can put a candidate over here, a candidate X who's really good, stellar candidate into this company I'm paying, paying me 10% and I'm fighting against everybody else. And actually doesn't matter whether I spoke to them or not, they're going to put me in a list with everybody else. Or this company over here where I'm building a relationship with, I know who I can speak to, I can talk to the line manager, I'll interview them tomorrow, I'm getting good fees out of it. So I think sometimes clients find will find they're actually hitting themselves in the foot if they're not doing the, helping to support companies like recruitment companies doing it properly. And making that process, and, and but equally, it's got to come from us because we've got to be able to do as you've done, you know, deliver for your clients. Do, go there, actually, I'll do that fiftieth call, that fifty-first call, and do those things, and then put the tickets well, over there so you can turn and up. You and know, 
And when you tell clients this, or it's been my experience that when you tell clients this, I remember being in a quote unquote shootout. I drove to Montreal, an hour and a half drive to meet with a robotics company who wanted to hire us to do a couple of projects. And I'm sitting, I'm standing. I was sitting, but I stood to present. I'm standing at the end of a boardroom table and there's a CEO, the president and the chairman of the board. And I'm probably the last person they're going to meet during the day because it was the end of the day. And I don't, I don't very rarely do I do these things. And, um, you know, the chairman of the board says, uh, so what's so great about you? We've been here all afternoon. I think we've heard it all. What's so great about you? And I said, um, I don't know. I said, uh, I'm relentless. I won't stop until I'm finished. I said, I, I make complete strangers friends. I thought that was an honest answer. He laughed and told me I was, he said, you're so full of shit. Everybody says that. I said, well, you know, let me put it another way that you'll probably understand. I can get at anybody, anytime, anywhere. He says, again, you're full of shit. I said, really? So I reached in my my briefcase and I pulled out this book. I'd written a book called Career Guide for the High-Tech Professionals, Where the Jobs Are Now and How to Land Them. And I said, have you ever heard of uh, J. Comrade Levinson? He says, oh, yeah. I said, what about... uh, Stephen Covey, yeah. Seth Godin, yeah. Guy Kawasaki, yeah. I said, oh, really? Well, and I took the book, turned it over, and I tossed it down the table so that it landed in front of him. I said, you see those cover quotes on the back of that book from Stephen Covey and Guy Kawasaki and J. Conrad Levinson and Seth Godin? He says, yeah. I said, that's my book. I don't know these guys. These guys don't know me from Adam, or they didn't, until I phoned up and told them what I needed from them and why they should do it. I said, that's what I mean when I say I can reach anybody, anytime, anywhere. And he looks at me and he's about to say something. I said, I understand the meeting's over. You can't possibly want to work with someone like me because I just can't see it. You don't take any input. So I said, thank you all very much for your time. And I said, throw me back the book. And I put it in my briefcase and I left. And I'm driving home and I get this phone call from the CEO and he's laughing. And I said, hey, listen, I didn't mean to embarrass you, David. He said, no, 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 listen, you got the job. I said, well, I'm not sure I want. I said, listen, we'll pay you a bonus, okay? That was the best presentation week I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm thinking, but it wasn't really a presentation, was it? It was me telling them what I was going to do. They're not believing me and my giving them proof. And why am I telling you this? Because a lot of guys in our business, and I've seen it, I've got a lot of friends in the business, are still with the, can you give me a job order? Can you give me a job order? you know, and negotiate percentages on the phone, as opposed to understanding what their issue is. The first real client I ever got was completely by accident. I'm sitting in a bullpen. The two women sitting next to me are making 100 calls a day because we've got the pump cards. I'm making four. Mm. This is the guy that fired me after my, uh, my holidays. I'm making four, but I'm having conversations. But I called this guy because I read in the newspaper that they were going to put up a real estate development in Ottawa. And I called him up and said, hi, my name is, and I, I, I see that you're going to put up this building. I said, you got a big staff? Because I've never really heard of you. No, I just started this. He says, we're uh, from Toronto, and I got to hire a whole staff. And I said, well, you know, like, I'm a headhunter. And he said, what's that? That's how old I am. <laughs> and I explained. He said, well, that sounds fantastic. I said, well, why don't we go have a coffee? He said, sure. And um, a couple of days later, I signed my first agreement, a, a retainer. It wasn't for much. And I don't remember what it was for. It was some junior project manager. But by the time I finished with these guys, five or six years later, we'd done five major structures in Ottawa. We built two skyscrapers in Buffalo, New York, of all godforsaken places, San Francisco and New York. And the only reason I had to uh, 
retires because the president at the time or the owner at the time decided that he wanted to get out of the business. He was in his late 80s and he didn't have, he only had two daughters and neither one of them wanted to be in the real estate business. They wanted to be investment bankers. So he called me in Toronto and we spent two days in the boardroom figuring out how, and I'm talking, I'm, I am 31 at this time. We spent three days in the boardroom figuring out how we're going to wind this company down in terms of how much he should pay the CEO, the CTO, the, uh, the, the CFO, the president he had, that would be fair because he all promised them we we're going to build this uh, organization. And now he was shutting it down because of his daughters. So the, I only, the only one I remember was the CFO walked away with a, a check for two million bucks because I, I made him show it to me before we handed it out. But see, those are the kind of relationships that you can have when you start a conversation not around, hey, I see you're hiring, or I see you're looking for, or give me an order, but I understand that you're doing this because I read about it. Do you have any issues? Can I help you with that? Yeah. Reframe the question and you get a better relationship and a better conversation. Happening. You know, you couldn't dislodge me for Dynamite. Yeah. I had access to the company Jet, you know, a black Amex. It was, you know, all on their, on their behalf. Yeah. Right? That's how it works. And, and those are the kinds of relationships you can have I've seen over the years, because everybody says that they do nothing but hire the best, and everybody says they have the biggest database and all that kind of stuff. I, I think CEOs and senior executives have become, A, confused, and B, quite jaded, which is why they pushed it down to the HR department or the purchasing department to say, yeah, yeah, you know, put these guys on the list and you know, cut a good price, and you know, they'll vet them on the way in. And of course, they can't vet them on the way in, because what most people don't realize when they're interviewing is if a candidate's between opportunities, they're selling. They're selling like hell. And they've probably done 15 interviews before they meet you. Mm. And you've probably done three that year. So you're unarmed man. You're, you're easy prey. And people get in and they get out. And yeah. you know, we hire for skill. We fire for fit. And people can pretend to be whatever they want to be when they go into a company yeah, for, for that kind of interview. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, it, there's probably only a handful of companies in the world. I was reading something recently. The, um, the former CEO, uh, Chief People Officer, CPO of Google was writing about the fact there's probably only companies like Google that go, actually, we can hire. We're getting so many people coming into us every month, every quarter, every year. They can put in those processes that vet those candidates out and sort of says, okay, so therefore the line manager is only going to see the best of the best of the best. But that handful of companies in the world that get that, everybody else it's the other way around. You've got to go out there and you've got to, those companies, if they want the best, they've got to go and actually work hard to find it, to attract it, to bring it in, and then to, to actually sell the opportunity to the people to come through. And that's a massive disservice that the recruitment community is doing to those companies because we're not doing that for them. And, and sometimes because they're not helping us to do that, but certainly because we're not doing that as part of the process. No. And, and what most people don't realize is any of your audience, HR, some of them will be, yeah, yeah. Some of them will be, yeah. Okay, so I apologize to your audience members who are HR in advance. Yeah. And, and it probably doesn't apply to you anyway, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to a podcast like this. <laughs> but it, it's not lost upon most people that most companies hire the least qualified person to judge the best and the brightest. And they put them in HR. Because how much harm can they do? Well, let me give you a, a good example. Have you ever heard of the, the app, WhatsApp? So do you know the story of the guy who invented WhatsApp? I don't know if you know that. It's, it's, it's in executive recruiting for dummies. And every speech I give, I always talk about this because this guy left, I can't remember, I think it might've been Google. He and a buddy uh, left Google and he went to, for an interview at Facebook and they didn't find him qualified. 
So they sent him on his way and he was so angry that he called, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, that he called his buddy and they started this company called WhatsApp, which Facebook bought five years later for, I believe it was $23 billion. Now, it may have only been $10 billion. That's not the point. Here's the point. I would love to find that HR manager who said, no, nah, we don't think you're Facebook material. I'd love to find them and inter- they're probably buried somewhere, but I'd love to find them and interview them and find out, you know, what objective criteria did they use and what was going through your mind? And how do you feel about that now? Would you change anything that you did? So, you know, my point being that, you know, the best and the brightest are rarely in charge of finding a company's bright stars. Yeah. They're the least qualified. I mean, I mean, if they are good in HR, a lot of it's cost-related these days, and it's got to be the lowest cost suppliers and all this sort of stuff, and then the other issues of it all. Just well, moving on slightly from, from that, and it does sort of link quite neatly into it, really. So we've talked initially when we first sort of kicked off the podcast, the idea of, and you and I are big believers in this idea of the Industrial Revolution 4.0, the fact that we're now in this, this fourth iteration, if you like, with the first one being back way back when, when we started putting coal and steam power stations together. We're now at 4.0. And I think also linked to that because of what's happened over the last 12 months and people getting more used to working from home and companies sort of having that sort of hybrid workforce now. I think we're going to see, and I, I think you're agreeing with me, and maybe I'll put words in your mouth, I won't do that. But there is going to be an increasing pressure now on, on whether we can, you know, where do we get the best skills from? doesn't necessarily mean you're hiring from someone down the road. You're maybe not even necessarily in your own country now. You could be looking far wider afield for the, the technology or the skills or whatever it will be going forward that you're particularly looking for. And the fact that companies are going to have to deal with that now as part of their, their hiring process is going to be an interesting uh, conundrum, should we say. Yeah, it's interesting. If I can digress for just about like a minute and a half here, Adrian, you know, the, the first industrial revolution really ushered, was ushered in by the steam engine, you know, and really led to the mechanization of work. And the second was led by the electrification of factories and machineries, and it enabled mass production on a grand, grand scale. We all oftentimes think of the Ford Motor Company. And the third industrial revolution, well, that happened in the 50s, and it really introduced computers to the workplace and led to the automation of both the back office administration and the teller's window for banks, for example. Well, the common theme in those first three revolutions was the reduction of the organization's dependence on its human capital. Okay. They used the inventions of the time to make people redundant. Mm-hmm. With me? Absolutely. So industry 4.0 is, is about to change that and change it in a good way for people. And here's why I say this. I don't believe in the bleeds and the feeds of industry, industry 4.0. I don't think it's all about IoT. Industry 4.0 is driven by an electronically connected world. And in the emerging 4.0 world, people are connected not only to each other, but also to each other's knowledge. I mean, look at us today. We're six or 7,000 miles apart, and it was a millisecond before we could talk. So the, the impact of this connectivity is best summed up by the following observation made by Nick Bontis, which I've committed to memory for the University of um, McMaster University. In the 1930s, the accumulated codified knowledge, that may be everything written down, uh, that knowledge base of the world would double every 30 years in the 1930s. In the 70s, it doubled every seven years. And Bontis you know, predicted that by 2000, it was going to double every couple of years. Right now, the codified knowledge of the world doubles in about a week. Okay. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I, actually, I think the, the last stats I read were about 11 hours. So what's the point in all this? Well, 
since knowledge equals opportunity, and the opportunities are now available to organizations are also growing exponentially, and because everyone is connected to the knowledge, everyone is connected to the opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So competitive advantage today lies in an organization's ability to exploit the knowledge and spot opportunities before anybody else does. And companies can consistently do this faster than their competition. They're the ones that win. So there's an interesting byproduct now. The, the leaders that we used to have were hired because they were command and control people. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a, say they had a staff of five. They knew what had to be done, but they parceled out the pieces to the other five people and only told them what had to be done. And they, they held control that way. Well, what's happening now is because everybody's got the knowledge, you can't manage that way anymore. You, you, you now need to figure out how to get people into a room and share knowledge openly. There's a new type of leader that you're looking for. You know, 1.0 leaders focus on building high-performance individuals and 4.0 leaders focus on building high-performance cultures or teams. Yeah. And that has profound impacts for our industry because we're now looking for different people. And, you know, it doesn't matter where people are in the world. And that's the point you were, you were talking about. Everybody now has access to everybody else. So he who puts together the best team that works together well, well, they have the competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. So hiring the type of person that does that is completely different from hiring the way we, we do now, because we're, we're now looking for those superstars. That's what we get paid to do. Yeah. And superstars are easy to find because they say, super, superstars are easy to find because, you know, they tell us why they're superstars in a LinkedIn profile. But, you know, the, the 4.0 leader is not about building their profile. They're about building their team's profile. So they're even harder to find because they don't brag about themselves. Mm -hmm. They let the team brag about who they are and what they've done. So now it's even more difficult to spot the true leaders. They're the people that can lead in an industry 4.0 world. And even if you could, most employers still understand, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. only closers, coffees for closers. Yeah. Ah, no. So it's a, whole, it's, it's a shift. And the reason I think this is cool for us in the industry is this is what we do. We, as recruiters, put together teams. And, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I, I have a company that came, and I've been talking to this guy for a couple of years. He asked us to put together a sales team for his telecom company, not a commercial team, but a residential team. That's fine. It's something I can do. He wanted a CTO, a couple of other executives. And the company's been around for a while, but they're going through a transition. So we said, sure, we had a conversation, made him a proposal. Our proposal's, I think it's 23 pages long. It tells him what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and what we're going to charge for, and what they're responsible for. And uh, then we had a conversation, an intake call. At the end of the intake call, I said, uh, any questions? And I've known this guy for like, I don't know, five, six years. And right out of the blue, he says, well, you know, we think your fees are too high. I said, what? So we think your fees are too high. I said, oh, that's what, that's what I thought you said. Um, well, that's what we charge. So, well, we have an alternative. So he went through this alternative proposal. And I said, uh, I said, no, I, I have his entire board on the call. It's a, yeah. it's a Zoom call. And I said, no, we don't, just don't work that way. And there's a whole bunch of reasons I could tell you why you shouldn't do it that way either. But I think you've made up your mind. So, you know, I let the rest of my day back. So, no. And he made another pitch as we're, as we're signing off. And three days later, he came back with another counter proposal, which was better than his first proposal, but still... He's taking our proposal and what we told him we would do it for and deciding what he thought we should do it for based yeah. on what everybody else thought they should do it for. 
I said, no. So why did I do this? Well, experience tells me, and I've been doing this for a long time, I'll let him go on his way. And three months from now, I'll call him up and say, so did you make the last quarter? No. (laughs) Well, (laughs) do you want us to solve that problem? So sometimes the best thing to do is to walk away. But what's going to happen in the meantime is he's going to have 10 or 15 agencies in Ottawa who are all going to be out there scouring for the whoever's available and pitching them, but he's going to get it at a good price. Yeah. And, you know, and, and most clients still need to be taught, and I'm getting to the end of this and the point, most clients still need to be taught the difference between price and cost. Yeah. And I use an example all the time. I pulled a guy out of Bovis, used to be a big construction engineering firm in the UK. Yeah. Guy had closed the refurbishment of the Statue of Liberty, Canary Wharf, and Euro Disneyland, all in the same year. He was 30 years old. He's a Brit. Pulled him to Canada, put him in a, uh, a general contracting firm that was doing about $307 million. Put him in as director of PR and marketing. The most amount of money Jeff Smith, as Zell's Don, had ever spent in his entire life for a marketing person, almost triple, right? <laughs> and he was quite upset, but he did it. Well, uh, this guy that we placed left two years ago. Wow. He was there 26 years. Great, and, and, great return on investment for him. And it was a pivotal moment because the company was at 307 million. Their biggest competitor was at a billion four. They were at 3.7 billion now. And their biggest competitor is either a couple hundred million more or less. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But these guys have grown tenfold. And it was that hiring that one person that did it. And I give this example all the time. And people say, well, you know, hiring a project manager or secretary is not going to make that much of a difference. No, probably not. So don't listen to me. But if you want to, you know, make more money, you have to go up the value, you know, the food chain. Mm-hmm. You literally do. And you've got to start playing with the executives. I, you know, my first placement was for a, an assistant manager of a clothing store. And I happened to take, he happened to be my former boss. And I pulled him out of where he was and put him in here. You know, the fee was, uh, the salary was like $28,000. You know, the fee was, I think, 4500 bucks. This is where I'm making $500 a month draw. Yeah. Um, and I got $600. So I got 100 bucks that month. <laughs> Whoopee! <laughs> so, you know, I, I've started where most people start, which is in the beginning. And, and, you know, and use these principles and these practices, you know, to get where we are now, where, you know, I'm negotiating a deal now, knock on wood, that by the time I'm finished, it'll be worth north of $750,000. Right. Not the biggest deal we've ever done. My yeah. partner has the biggest deal. She closed a 10-year, $10 million contract about three years ago. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, but coming back to that point, it's, it's that ability to, as you say, walk away, say no, is, is so crucial to that process. It would be, you know, you, you have to at some point sit that stand on the ground. This is, my, this, is what I, this is what I do. This is the value I bring to your business. This is the ability I'm going to do. This is the work I'm going to do to get you the quality of leadership you're looking for, the quality candidate you're looking for, or whatever it might be that you're, whatever sector or area of the business, business you're working in. But you have to be able to say no. You have one of the biggest sort of points of difference, I feel like, in terms of recruitment is that ability to say, no, we're not interested. I'm not prepared okay. to do it for that level or not prepared to do that job, that sort of work for that price or whatever it might be that says you, means you have to say no because otherwise you're just going to end up racing to the bottom and it's just nobody likes it down there. It was one of my clients in the construction business, the road building company that, that taught me this lesson. You know, Dennis said, uh, you know, whenever we bid, we always bid to be second. I said, why would you bid to be second? Think about it, David, because the first place guy is going to bid it to build it at cost. If he makes a mistake, and he will, he goes bankrupt. So he goes bankrupt. I'm second. They pick me. I get my full fee and I buy all this equipment 
at yeah. five cents on the dollar. And you, know, you, you laugh, but he built a billion dollar company this way. Oh, no, no doubt. Always being second. So, you know, I a couple of years ago, I had a massive stroke, couldn't walk, talk, read, write. It was a mess. And uh, two of my competitors in Ottawa found out about this and ran around town and told my clients I was brain dead. Technically, they're right. Okay, I got it. But uh, pretty low thing to do. Yeah, yeah. But a, but a year and a half later, you know, we're all bidding on this contract. I didn't want to bid on the contract, but I was asked to bid on the contract. So I, it was for 500 people. It was 500? No, sorry. It's for 5,000 hires over the next, I think it was eight years at a major crown court. And they wanted a price per head. So I let it be known on the street that I was bidding very aggressively. I was going to go in at about $2,100 to $2,200 a head. That's a lot of money, man. Yeah. And um, the other company, the guy that, that, that ran around town told everybody I was brain dead, his company won. They bid $1,950 a head. I never bid. I never bid. And he had to hire five staff to do this because it was a crown corp. And if they failed on it, every other company that they had that was crown corp was going to pull. So, you know, that big sucking sound I used to hear, you know, in the morning, that was a vacuum at his shop because those five guys were costing him a lot of money. And that it just cost him a ton of time. And it went on for six years. Yeah. So sometimes no is done strategically. That's my point. <laughs> but sometimes you sidestep the thing completely and get the other end of it quite nicely. Thank you very much. Yep. Well, thank you very much. That has been really, really useful, really interesting, and some amazing stories in there, David. And I just, I want to thank you for the bottom of my heart for the time you've taken. It's been really interesting to speak to you. You know, you've got a lot of uh, knowledge, and your books are out there for people to read, but there's definitely some stories in there. I'm sure some of my listeners will be very interested to, to read on with. So how can people find you? How can people get hold of your, your books and your bits and pieces? I know quite a few of them are on published, but we've got quite a lot of published articles and things like that, which we share in the description of the podcast. But the books that would be of most interest, I think, to your listeners would be Executive Recruiting for Dummies, mm-hmm. which and you can get that on you know, just Google Executive Recruiting for Dummies. You can go to our website, perrymartel.com, yeah. but, and you'll, but we'll take you back to, to Amazon. And the, the, the story that I think most people would, your listeners would resonate with and enjoy is called Hiring Greatness, How to Recruit Your Dream Team and Crush the Competition. And the reason they would enjoy that is that is the story of my 1,000th search. It was for a CO, I'm living in Ottawa. It was for a company in California for a COO to run a division in Minneapolis or Milwaukee. Okay, so from Ottawa to LA, LA to Milwaukee. That's how he phones up and says, is this the road recruiter? I said, yes, this is David Perry. Who am I speaking to? Anyway, it's a good lesson because it shows why what we do is of value. This guy had spent two hundred dollars or $280,000 hiring the two largest search firms in the world. Both of them ran searches. Both of them came up dry. Both of them got paid and walked away. That's unusual, but it happens, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this guy was pestering me to do this deal. I said, you know, give me two first-class tickets and a check for 30 grand and I'll fly down and meet you. And this is the opening couple pages of the book. So we do that and we walk into this guy's office and um, he introduced himself and blah, 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 starts to, uh, starts to talk about himself. And I said, well, you know, Rudy, Fred, I'd just like to ask you three questions. And he says, he says, no, 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 no. You work for me now, boy. You work for me now, boy. That's a quote. It's in the book. And I said, really? And I open up my jacket pocket and I pull out this envelope and I pull out his check and I say, you recognize this? That's the check you sent me. I said, I'm going to ask you three questions. And if you answer the three questions correctly, I keep the check. We do the work. We're all friends. 
I said, if you don't, I tear through the signature line. You take us for lunch. We're still friends. I didn't wait for him to say yes or no. And I got his, I got his chair of the board, his vice chair of the board, at, at, sitting at the table with him. And the guy that I'm training at the time, who's like 10 years my senior, and, and he's bald, broke into you know spontaneous waterfall coming out of his head because he couldn't believe I'm about to hand all this money back. And then I won't tell you how it ends, but you get to page five in Hiring Greatness, you'll find out. But that book is step-by-step what we did, why we did it, how we ran two searches. Steve, you know, ran an ad and talked to, I got him, 800 people Mm -hmm. to find, you know, five people. And I instead targeted 10 companies and phoned the CEOs, or sorry, the chairs of the board and said, I'm looking for this, you know, do you know anybody? Because you're in the same business or you're close enough. And they all, seven of them told me this guy was perfect for the job, but he, he just retired and there's no way he was going back to work. So verbatim, my phone call to him that got him, you know, on the phone, kept him on the phone and got him into the, uh, the first interview. That's, that's all in the book. Yeah, so most people that have read it that are in the industry uh, as recruiters, read it and like it because of the attitude it helps them bring to the job and naturally. And, you know, we are experts. Most of us, when we're in front of clients, forget that we're experts and forget that they have a problem that we can solve and they want us to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we need to take charge. No, definitely. I absolutely echo that. And that's a great place to. So what we'll do is I'll put the links in the description below to the books and to your website and to the uh, articles that you've written in places like Forbes and other places, which are incredibly uh, good articles for people to look at and read as well but certainly put the links to the books and your website in the description of the podcast but again David it's been an amazing time to spend a bit of time with you and somebody who's been through all the work and efforts you've been through over the years it's great to hear some of those war stories and, and get some lessons off you from a, a mere child in the industry as I am to somebody like me <laughs> I want to thank you very much for your time your effort your energy and I look forward to some of the comments from people as they've read the books and, and come back to us over the, the next few weeks Perfect. Adrian, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Have a fantastic summer. Now's the time to make placements. Now's the time to make hay. Great time to go forward.